stories of their lives, their families, their work. I think we're supposed to have some PowerPoint here in just a minute. Uh, the Bible's filled with stories about people, and the Spirit of God introduces us to Adam and Eve, to Abraham and Sarah, to Rahab and Ruth, to the boy Samuel and a little girl who told an army commander how he could be healed. We meet uh, Matthew, Jochebed, Luke, Paul, Rebecca, Silas, Priscilla, and Aquila. And that's one of the joys of reading your scripture is that the Holy Spirit loves to introduce us to all these different people. And it would seem to me that um, since God has put so much biographical material in the Bible, that he wants us to think carefully about the lives of the people that we discover in his word. So I want to uh, do that with you this morning to introduce you to one person. And I think his name should be up there. Yeah, there he is, Elijah the Tishbite. So you may, in your own study, have done uh, some study of biographical uh, figures in the Bible, and you may wonder, if you haven't, how we can do this. Well, one way that we could do it would be to select a person in the Bible who interests us for one reason or another, and then look up the meaning of their name, uh, discover when and where they lived, examine their weaknesses, their failures, and their strengths, look at their family background, uh, their family relationships, the mistakes they made, the privileges they squandered, the opportunities they lost, and explore their areas of success and the opportunities they made good use of, as well as the dangers they avoided. And we can learn a tremendous amount about our own lives and for our own lives as we simply look at the lives of those whom God has recorded in the scriptures for us. And in the book of Second or First Kings in the Old Testament, we are introduced to a compelling character. First uh, Kings chapter 17, verse 1, is the first time this man is mentioned in the Scriptures. And there we read, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. <clears throat> So if you'll notice, there's two men mentioned in this verse, Elijah, that we'll talk about at great length today, and Ahab. Now, we don't discover a whole lot about this man, Elijah, here. So if we're going to get to know him from just this one verse, we'll need to work carefully with what God has given us. But the little that the Bible does tell us about Elijah um, gives us some answers to the questions we may have about him. Questions like, Uh, What does his name mean? Uh, Where was he from? What kind of times did he live in? And what did he have to say? And it's interesting that those are questions that sometimes we ask about another person when we want to get to know a bit about them. So where do they come from? Where do they live? What kind of work do they do? What kind of times do they live in? And so we're going to go through simply and answer these questions. And then at the end, we'll just make a few comments about uh, what Elijah stood for in his life. <clears throat> and I've given you, uh, I think most of you got a little uh, handout, a little uh, piece of paper. And if you'd like to follow along there, um, scribble on it a few notes if you want to. And on the back of it are some of the scriptures that I'm using if you don't have a Bible um, here today. So first of all, his name. <clears throat> the name Elijah means Jehovah is my God. So anytime you find the two little letters E-L-L in the Bible, That indicates the presence of God's name. So Emmanuel is God with us. 
and you could go through a bunch of other names. Joel, we have a son named Joel. Um, and all those names, because they have the two little letters E-L, uh, means have something to do with God. So Elijah's name then is an indicator of the kind of person he was and where he stood in relation to God. Now there are many other people in Israel at that time that had names that similarly included God's name, and, and yet their names didn't be, mean very much in terms of how they lived. <clears throat> but in the case of Elijah, his name is highly significant. And I'd like you, if you're a Christian here this morning, to think along with me about your name. Not your family name or your given name, but your adopted name. The name that you were given when you came to faith in Christ. When you were adopted into his family and were baptized. Some people today still in parts of the world are given a totally new name when they're baptized because it means a totally new life for them. And sometimes that life means hardship and difficulty because their families don't like the new name that they've been given, don't like that they've come to Christ. But if we today call ourselves Christians, what does that say about us? Are we we living up to this name that we carry around? Now, scholars argue about where Elijah came from, but the Bible seems to indicate that he was from a place called Tishbe in Gilead. And you'll see it there, the big red arrow points to Tishbe. And uh, of course, the little, the, the second little blue thing at the top is the Sea of Galilee. The big one down here is the Dead Sea. So uh, Tishbe was on the right-hand side of the Jordan River that ran between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. So he's from a little town called Tishbe. Now the Bible often identifies prophets by their hometown, and six times if you read in First Kings chapter uh, one or First Kings and Second Kings, you'll find that Elijah is identified as the Tishbite. Now, Tishbe uh, was located about 13 kilometers north of the Jabbok River. And then just above the, the brook Kareth. And the story that we won't study today tells about Elijah going and, and living for quite a long time, perhaps a couple of years, by the brook Kareth. And there the ravens brought him food in the morning and food at night. It's one of the great stories of Scripture. But Tishbe was located in that section of Israel that's east of the Jordan River. It's a province or an area called Gilead, and that's where the original tribes of Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh, if you remember your biblical history, uh, lived. And there's a lot of exciting biblical history happened in the area of Gilead. But many Israelites of that time who lived on the other side of the river looked down upon this area of Israel as being not nearly as important as Judea and Samaria, which were on on the other side of the river. So Gilead was part of a larger area called the Transjordan, an area that included Moab here at the bottom, Edom, uh, Ammon there, and Aram, which is Syria, uh, up at the top. So today, if you go to Israel, and you go up in the Golan Heights, and there's a a border wall there, and right across the border from the top of the Golan Heights is Syria. So it's always been one of the neighbors of Israel. Now, being so close to these nations meant that Gilead, and thus Tishbe, where Elijah came from, was a rugged place, because those nations were the enemies of Israel. And so they would often rage and, and rampage through the region. So you had to be tough. 
uh, to live in Tishbe. Elijah was known as Elijah the Tishbite. Now, many of us here today are Albertans, although, as you know, um, because it's Banff, there's also many of you here from many other parts of the world. <clears throat> but in case you don't know, uh, being an Albertan is a matter of uh, some pride for us. Albertans are known to be hard workers, independent, and innovative. And as you know about the, the place, the part of the world that you come from, where you come from defines to a degree the character that you are, the person that you are. Well, what I want you to think about again this morning is that if you and I are Christians today, that's far more important <clears throat> than being an Albertan or a Canadian or any other nationality. So who we are as followers of Jesus should define us and determine our character far more than any ethnicity does. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us much about Elijah's appearance, though we do learn in Second uh, Kings chapter 1, verse 8, that he wore a garment of hair and he had a belt of leather around his waist. <clears throat> now, if you have read the scriptures at all, that reminds you of somebody else. His name was John the Baptist, and he lived just before and during the time of our Lord Jesus. He was a man who lived in the desert, and he wore a suit of camel's hair, and he ate grasshoppers, locusts, and wild honey. So Elijah and John the Baptist are often connected in the scriptures. We don't know um, about Elijah. We don't know the names of his parents. Uh, we have no idea what his occupation was before he became a prophet. But he was likely a rugged person. He wasn't suave and well-dressed and mild-mannered. He was a pretty compelling character. Well, the second man that we meet in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1 here, is a man that most people of that day saw as far more important than Elijah the Tishbite. And this man's name was Ahab. He was the king of Israel. Israel at that time comprised uh, the ten northern tribes, that's the uh, green part there. And then uh, Judah comprised just two tribes, Benjamin and Judah in the south. So Israel was a divided kingdom. It divided uh, into two, these two different areas shortly after the reign of Solomon, um, but it was divided from that point on for many, many years. So a quick look uh, at the life of Ahab will help answer our question about what kind of times Elijah lived in. So as chapter 16 of 1 Kings comes to an end, and Elijah appears on the scene in chapter 17, verse 1, the writer of uh, 1 Kings sets the stage for us in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 33. And in these verses, he tells us what kind of times Elijah lived in. Because without understanding this, you won't understand either the man or his ministry. So uh, we discover then, as we read uh, 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 33. <clears throat> in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel. There's a fairly 
well-known biblical name. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. We'll talk about these terms in just a minute. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So the biblical writers set the stage for us here, and you need to understand that when they're writing history, they're writing sacred history. They're not writing secular history, meaning they have a purpose in writing their history. And every historical writer that you will read has a purpose in what they write. They have certain things they want to draw out to your attention. And the biblical writers are no different. So they tell us about what's going on in each part of the divided kingdom. And as you look at this scripture, you find in the 38th year of the reign of Asa, king of Judah. So in the southern part of of the land of Israel, Judah, uh, king Asa was reigning. And in the 38th year of his reign, In Jerusalem, this man Ahab began to reign in the northern part of the kingdom in his capital city, Samaria. So two capital cities in Israel this time, Jerusalem in the south, Samaria in the north, and Ahab reigned as king in Samaria for 22 years. So you can tell, because these writers are writing biblical history, they tell you how God feels. And they say, Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. Now that's saying a lot. If you've studied the kings of Israel and Judah, uh, particularly the kings of Israel, you know that Israel was ruled by some pretty wicked kings in her history. But Ahab was the worst of them. And this passage we're looking at tells us why, what Ahab did that was so evil in God's sight. So let me just run briefly with you through the things that are said here. Verse 31. As if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sons, or in the sins, sorry, of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam was the first king king of the northern part of the divided kingdom. And he didn't want his people going south to Jerusalem to worship God there, even though God had said to them, that's where you're supposed to worship. He wanted them worshiping up in his own kingdom. So he put two golden calves in the kingdom of Israel in the north, one at Dan and one in Bethel. And so Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, really began a whole uh, cycle of idolatry in Israel in the northern kingdom by putting up these two golden calves. Verse 31. As if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he goes on to do worse things. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians. You see, God had warned his people about the nations that were all around them. He said to them, 1 Kings 11, verse 2, you must not intermarry with them for surely they will turn your hearts after their gods. So King Ahab disobeyed this command of God, and he married Jezebel, the daughter of a foreign king, and she led him astray to follow her idols. And, And we as Christians know, of course, that that's not something that is just true of the Old Testament. God says to us in the New Testament, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Don't marry someone who's not a Christian. 
some wonder even don't even go to, into business perhaps with someone who's not a Christian. Because the someone who's not a Christian and you as a Christian, you'll look at life differently. Things will just look totally different to you and at some point that will cause real problems. Well, verse 31 32, Ahab went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. So this king of Israel, then he built a temple for Baal, a foreign god in his capital city of Samaria. And that temple had an altar where he could worship Baal. And so he did. And he also worshiped Asherah. They had big tall poles that, where they worshiped Baal and Asherah. And these two foreign religions are called fertility religions, Baal and Asherah. And they promoted as part of their religion horrific practices. So part of the religion was ritual prostitution. Part of the religion, these religions were offering your children as a sacrifice to your God to try to please your God by giving him the most precious thing you have. So they were terrible uh, religions that led people astray from God. So here in verse 33, the author sums it up by saying Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So, so many people, many um, well-meaning, I'm sure, uh, Christians in some denominations teach that God is love, and they never teach the other part of God's character. They say God loves you, which is true. Um, they say God, Jesus died to forgive your sins, which is true. But they never tell us that you as a person, that I as a person, can actually provoke the Lord by your sins. And so as a person, that's what we need to come to terms with in our lives is, have I called out to God asking for his forgiveness for all the things that I've done to provoke him uh, to anger? So this then was the climate of evil in Israel as Elijah began his prophetic ministry to the northern tribes. It was a time of rampant sin and ungodliness when most people in the nation were not loyal to the God of Israel. They were worshiping false gods. It was an exceptionally difficult time as well if you were a Christian, if you were a follower of Jehovah, sorry, in that particular time, if you wanted to serve God. And it was particularly difficult for the prophets of Jehovah. And as an example just of how perilous it was, in 1 Kings chapter 18, we're introduced to a man called Obadiah. In verses 3 and 4, the first scripture up there, it says, Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets, that means she killed them, the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And a bit later in the same chapter, verse 13, Obadiah is talking to Elijah and he rehearses with him uh, what he had done to protect the servants of the Lord. And he did this for a very particular reason. You need to read the story to understand it. I'm not going to go into it. But Obadiah said to Elijah, Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. So in those verses, we learn what Jezebel was like. Jezebel, the queen of Israel, was so attached to the worship of her idols that she began to cut off or kill the prophets of the Lord. And she went about doing that, and the Lord's prophets were in great danger, and Obadiah helped them 
by hiding them in groups of 50 in caves and feeding them with bread and water. So he was a man of courage, a man who in the midst of of evil times was willing to take care of God's servants and to um, hide them from danger. So brothers and sisters, I don't think I'm telling you anything new to remind you that you and I are living in evil times too. Our culture, the people around us, pressure us to worship false gods, to affirm as acceptable the rampant immorality that is so prevalent in our culture. And those who stand against the tide of evil, who stand up for God and for his word and for what is right, are canceled and criticized, sometimes even thrown in prison. (laughs) So if you speak up about how wrong same-sex marriage is in the eyes of God, or if you stand outside an abortion clinic and hold up a sign about how evil it is to kill unborn babies, you'll find out how true this is. Some of you perhaps have already experienced that. It's a hard thing to stand up for God in evil times. But the life of Elijah is a great example of one who did this. Well, remember the questions we're asking about Elijah? What's his name? Where does he come from? What kind of times does he live in? And now we come to the last of those questions. What does he have to say? And we'll go back to our verse, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, so he said to the king, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So we find out here then that Elijah has a message for Ahab, the king of Israel from the Lord. And this verse tells us that Elijah delivered God's message to the king which is as it appears there in the verse on the screen. So when you read your Bible, you have to put your imagination into practice. So how did Elijah deliver his message? No email, no text messaging. Did he send a note saying, Oh, king, I have a message for you from the God of Israel. Come get it. (laughs) Not likely. He didn't say to the king to come and get a message. So how then did he deliver it? Well, as far as we understand, Elijah had to go to the king and deliver the message in person. He had to walk right into the palace of the king, into the throne room, and say these words to his face. In the words of one author, Elijah storms up to the palace, into the presence of the king, and delivers his ultimatum. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then before the king's bodyguard can figure out what just happened, Elijah disappears and they can't find him anywhere. So that's courage in the face of overwhelming circumstances. Courage for God. And in a little book about the life of Elijah, a teacher, Howard Hendricks, who's gone on to glory now, identifies three convictions that Elijah held that made him effective in communicating the truth and the reality of God to his generation. And here are those um, three. Three convictions of Elijah. First of all, Elijah is convinced of the reality of Jehovah God. 
So Elijah's declaration to King Ahab starts out like this, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. So Elijah believed passionately that the God of Israel was alive and was at work in the world in which he lived. And that was why he's standing before the king now, delivering the message, endangering his own life, and really making him an outcast for years to come. Elijah was utterly convinced that God existed. It was the central motivating factor in all of his life. But Elijah knew, as we know in our generation, that it's not convenient, it's not comfortable to take a stand for God. It never is. And Hendricks in his little book says, and I quote, the most convincing thing about Christianity is its power to change people. The world is not overwhelmed by your argumentation. It is not overly impressed by your success story. The world is convinced only by that which it cannot produce, namely reality in human experience. Only God can produce that. So friends, the question we need to ask ourselves about our own lives in our time and place is, do we truly believe that God is alive and lives in us and is at work in our world? Paul said that one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the world has a real hard time understanding that and accepting it. At Christmas time, they're willing to go along with it for a little while. Emmanuel, God with us. But for, for you and I to say to them, God lives inside of me. I speak with him every day. I read what he wants me to hear from his word. I pray. It's just something that's hard for them to get their head around. They may say, that's okay for you, but no thanks. <clears throat> so what in our lives will prove to them that God is real is when they see us change when they see us be different from what we used to be, when they see us willing to apologize when we say something wrong to them or when we do something wrong. So we need to ask ourselves, as people who don't know God, look at me. Are there things in my life that show them God is real? Because that is the message that will change us and it's the message for this world in which we live. It's the only hope that they have <clears throat> is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, there's a second strong conviction that Elijah held in his daily life, and that is this. Elijah was convinced that he was a representative <clears throat> excuse me, of the living God. So Elijah says here to King Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. What does it mean? What did he mean to stand before the Lord? <clears throat> well, remember the Christmas story. Um, this angel comes to Zechariah, this old man, and his wife. His wife is, um, is uh, barren. They have no children. And this angel comes to the priest Zechariah to tell him that in his old age, in nine months' time, he and his wife are going to have a baby. And this is what the angel says. I am Gabriel... I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you. 
So for Gabriel then, to stand in the presence of God means he's ready to do God's bidding whenever and whatever God says for him to do. And Ahab, who Elijah's speaking to, Ahab would have known exactly what Elijah was saying because Ahab would, all around his court in that day, he would have had all sorts of people standing there just ready to do whatever the king told them to do. So not only was Elijah convinced of the reality of God, Jehovah God, but he was also convinced that he was a representative, a servant of the living God of heaven. And friends, if you're a Christian this morning, you need to have that same conviction in your heart that you are a representative, a servant of the living God of heaven because that is what gives dignity and purpose to our experience as a Christian. You're not just Joe Blow working, digging ditches (laughs) or whatever else. You are a servant of the living God and God has put you exactly where you are to serve him in that place. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, something about this. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we learn here then that God entrusts to his children, to you and I, the message of reconciliation. He doesn't entrust it to angels. He entrusts it to human beings, to men and women and boys and girls and teenagers who know and love him. He says to them, you're to carry this message for me, the message of reconciliation. And as ambassadors of Christ, which we are, this message we are to share with our friends and our neighbors, the people we meet. And our calling as ones who have been born again, the thing that God has entrusted to us is to live out the gospel every day. And when we get the opportunity to implore people on behalf of Christ to beg them to be reconciled to God. So you see, the gospel has words and music. You can't get the full gospel without both. So the words of the gospel written in the scriptures, we know them, I hope you know them, the words of the gospel, what Jesus came to do for us, died on the cross and rose again so that our sins might be forgiven and we might be forever in heaven with him and live for him on this earth as well. But the music of the gospel is your life. God means that without a word, you live out the message of the gospel, the love of God for people, his concern for them, his willingness to be involved in their lives, that you live that out every day wherever you go. So our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, even our enemies are people whom God loves and whom we are to love and to whom we are to speak whenever we get the opportunity to beg them to be reconciled to God. Now that may sound a little demeaning, but the point is this. The Bible says that those who don't know Christ, if they never come to the place in their lives of believing in him, will someday go to what the Bible calls hell. 
And you don't, you don't hear hell preached about very much these days. Um, a man, a, a pastor named Peter Marshall once was eating in a little restaurant in the, in the south of Georgia. And in that restaurant, <clears throat> as he went up to pay his bill, he saw underneath the cracked and stained glass of the counter a little note that said, just because you don't believe in hell is no sign you ain't going there. And you and I have to find ways to convince our neighbors that there is a place to which they do not want to go. And there is a way by which they can stay out of that place by coming to Christ in repentance and faith, believing on him as their savior and giving him their lives and then living for him as their king. We need to present that message because friends, if we don't, and if they never hear it and respond to it, then they're lost for eternity. So it's not demeaning to beg your neighbors and your friends to come to Christ. It's the most loving thing that you can do for them. So this conviction that I'm a representative of the living God is what gives us courage and boldness in our workplace, at our school, in our neighborhood. Because if you're a representative of God, if you're an ambassador for him, Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you to the end of the world. And so whenever you go into those situations, whenever you need to talk to someone, he's right there. And he's already at work in the life of the person to whom you're speaking. So this conviction of us being representatives of the living God should govern how we live, how we spend our money, how we discipline our children, and how we relate to our brothers and sisters in the local church. Well, the third conviction in Elijah's life that transformed him was Elijah was convinced of the resources available to him. Convinced of the resources available to him. So Elijah was a powerful prophet who called the people of Israel back to God, especially through a great confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, one of the great stories of the Old Testament, how, how he, the prophets of Baal prepared a sacrifice and for six hours they danced around it and cut themselves and tried to get their God to answer by fire and burn up this sacrifice. And then Elijah put his sacrifice on an altar, built up the altar, put on the sacrifice, poured gallon after gallon of water on top of it, and then called out to God and God answered by fire and The fire of God came down and burned up the rocks and the sacrifice and the water and the wood, just like that. So it was a tremendous confrontation and exaltation of the power of God. Elijah is one of the only two people in the Bible who did not experience physical death. He was taken up to heaven in a chariot. His name is mentioned often in the New Testament, and if you remember your New Testament, you know that he appears along with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord Jesus when the Lord Jesus is glorified. So Elijah is a major figure all the way through uh, the scriptures. But it's interesting that James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, speaks of Elijah in a different way. Doesn't talk about all those things. This is what he says in James chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. 
And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So this observation helps us understand, from James, helps us understand the story we're studying in 1 Kings. James doesn't mention Elijah's courage, his boldness in speaking to King Ahab. James points to Elijah for two reasons. First reason, he had a nature like ours. So Elijah was subject to the same weaknesses, to the same temptations, to the same struggles as you and I. He was a human being. And the second thing James wants us to see is that Elijah is the example of a man, a righteous person, whose prayer has great power. So though he had a nature just like us, he prayed fervently and might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Prayed again, and the rain came. So James tells us about uh, Elijah's courage in confronting the king and his own generation was a direct byproduct of his prayer life. We sometimes think we have to go out and do a thousand different things. Elijah changed his generation because of his prayer life. And we may wonder, where did Elijah learn to pray like this? To ask God and to trust God that there would be no rainfall on the land for years. And I think we find a clue to this in Deuteronomy chapter 11 a text where we find Moses warning the people of God. And Moses would have written these words about 1400 B.C., so 1600 years ago. No, more than that. Anyway, 3400 years ago. And Moses wrote this, Take care to Israel. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, because then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord has given you. So Elijah believed then that God was a God who kept his promises. And when he read this promise in Deuteronomy chapter 11, 550 years later after Moses had written it, Elijah took God at his word that if the people of Israel engaged in idolatry, if they worshipped and served other gods, that God's anger would be kindled against them. And in these verses, God said that he would act by shutting up the heavens so there would be no rain. So Elijah looks around him, and he sees that the people of Israel are engaged in idolatry. They're serving other gods. They're being adulterous in their relationship with God. So Elijah is moved to pray, and in great earnestness, he simply asks God to do what he promised to do, to withhold the rain. And that's what he said to Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Elijah, in his prayers, simply took God at his word. So when we look at our, the world around us, we may wonder, what can I do? What resources do I have to live a righteous life for God in a corrupt and sinful generation? And it's important for us to remember that Elijah did not have one thing that is not available to you as a child of God today. He was a man just like us, James says. Elijah had the word of God to read and he had the power of prayer. And it was those two things that he put together, the word of God and the power of prayer, 
that he put together to influence and to change his world. So the ability of God to believe God for what he says and to make that our own in our prayers is what will cause the power of God to show up in our lives. Well, as I kind of get toward the end here, and we think about Elijah's life, some important questions for us to face. Am I convinced of the reality of God, of his actual presence in my life, in my heart? And secondly, do I believe that I'm a representative of the living God, that I'm an ambassador for Christ? I may do this job or that job or have no job, but, but whatever, I'm an ambassador for Christ if I'm a Christian wherever I go and whatever I do. And thirdly, am I convinced of the resources available to me? Do I read the scriptures daily as the guide for my life? And then do I take the promises of God in that word and act upon them in what I do and in how I pray? So as we consider the fact then that we're representatives of the living God, we need to remember there's a cost to serving him. And I want you to imagine how King Ahab and the people of Israel responded to Elijah's declaration that there would be no rain for three and a half years. There's about 19 counties in southern Alberta that have declared an agricultural emergency. Now, because there is no rain. Think of three and a half years with no rain. So Israel was largely an agricultural society. They depended on rain for their crops, their vineyards, their olive groves, their drinking water, the drinking water for their animals. <clears throat> so Elijah was called by God to give a hard message to an adult idolatrous society, <clears throat> a word from God that meant suffering for the people of that land. And friends, I just want to uh, <clears throat> remind you and challenge you that, that we too need to be prepared to stand up in our culture and sometimes to stand up against our culture and the people who live in it. For the name and the glory of God, we must seek or speak God's word and his truth <clears throat> to our family members, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, even though it may seem strange to them, even though they resent us for speaking to them that way. Do you remember how before his death on the cross, Jesus warned his disciples how the world would react to them? John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So may we pray together then that God will give us the grace and the courage to stand up for him in this world as a testimony to the fact that he is real and he is working in this world. May we demonstrate in our lives the truth and the power of his word. And may other people see him at work in our lives as he changes us to be more and more like his son, our strong and wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus. So Lord, we ask for your help <clears throat> and your grace. We thank you that by your spirit you've come to live in our lives.
that your spirit uh, came at Pentecost so many years ago to fill your people and empower them for the work that you've called us to do. And so we pray that you'll help us to be dependent upon him, to listen for his voice, to do his will as he directs us in our daily lives. We pray, dear Father, that we might see ourselves as representatives of you, as ambassadors of Christ, to realize that when people look at us, they should be able to see Christ in us, in the way we live, in the words we use and the ones we don't use, in how we minister to other people and show the love of Christ, how we speak the words of the gospel when we give them the chance. And Father, we pray that you might help us to rely on the resources you've given us, the, the Word of God, the living, inerrant, powerful sword of the Spirit. But we might be able to proclaim it, read it, study it, think about it, meditate on it, and then share it with others. And so, Father, we commend one another to your care. I pray for your blessing on Banff Park Church and on the other bodies of Christ from which these, your people, come from today. We pray that you might help us to stand for Christ in this world to which you've called us for his great glory. We pray it in his name. Amen.